I think I have a new and fun way to remember Reformation Day together. I just got back from Pennsylvania. That's Amish country and Philadelphia. I have some stories from that. But I want to start with this Let's Go Brandon phenomenon. We'll do that on this week's Corey Act Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. And one thing I love about this audience is I know some of you just said, what, There's who's Brandon? And why do we want him to go? Are we cheering for a given Brandon? I know not all of you know of this movement, but I want to explain it to you and make some and give you some thoughts from a Christian perspective. I always return from the road as I just got back from Pennsylvania with some things I might have learned while out there. And we we have uh, if you're listening live on His Radio Talk 91.9, we have Reformation Day. You might call it Halloween. That's on Sunday. So if you're listening live on radio, we are on All Hallows Eve. It's Halloween Eve, but it's also the eve of the Reformation when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door, starting the Protestant Reformation. And I try to bring that to you every year, and I think I'll have a new way to do it. We'll do that and more on this week's show, and we'll get started in just a second. First, my name is Corey Truax, and that works out because that is the name of the show, The Corey Truax Show. We're on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets for now at 4 p.m. at Heritage Baptist Church in Greenville. It's 103 Ravenel Street. I will be preaching that that Halloween day, that Reformation Day. You are invited. It's actually a really cool old church. I love being in those old churches. Can't wait to get back into our building, but I do love the uh, architecture and the intentionality uh, with uh, with the internet intentionality with which we should design churches so you're invited invited out there if you would like i want to start here though there is uh, throughout the internet in certain circles you will see people using the phrase let's go brandon and you'll see it in context that will confuse you it will not make any sense i remember when i first saw it I was probably two weeks behind everybody else, and I didn't know where it came from, and I was very confused because it seems like a meaningless thing to say, let's go, and in the name of a, I don't know, millions of people in the country, let's go, Brandon. Here's the story. There's a NASCAR driver over a month ago now who was being interviewed after a race, I believe, that he won. And in the background, while he's being interviewed by the little reporterette, these NASCAR fans are chanting something in the stands. What the reporter hears and then says into camera is, oh, and they're, ch- they're chanting, let's go Brandon back there, let's go Brandon. And I, I think the driver's name, first name might have been Brandon. But that's not what they were chanting. They were chanting something that's become quite popular to chant in college football games, in NASCAR races, and other various events. And that chant is an expletive, and in the name of the President of the United States, Joe Biden. So it's expletive Joe Biden. For some reason, to this little reporterette, it sounded like, let's go, Brandon. Now, now I'm not laughing at the chant. I am laughing at the woman who misinterpreted it. And so for some group of people, that became a symbol of media hiding the sentiment of the people. The sentiment of the people wanted to say a profane thing to and or about the head of the executive branch of the federal government, and the media was covering it up. 
And so as a response, it became a thing. Now if people want to say a negative thing about the President of the United States, as a code word, they might just say, let's go, Brandon. And I'm sure a lot of folks are having fun with it. There's one side of the political spectrum that thinks it's cute and funny. And I will admit, it's somewhat funny to me. This is a, like, it's almost like a, it's very childish. It's a very uh, lizard brain, undeveloped, your, your uh, prefrontal cortex not being fully developed. It's that kind of immature humor. It's almost like an, a toilet humor type of level. Nothing thoughtful about it, just kind of funny. But I noticed that it's very big on the right. And I notice that folks who identify with the thing I most identify with, identify with the church, with Christianity, they're starting to toss it out there on Twitter sometimes. I would suspect that some of the people in NASCAR stands and college football stands are chanting either the original expletive Joe Biden or chanting its, its uh, let's go with substitution, the let's go Brandon, but meaning the same thing that do that on Saturday and then head to the church house on Sunday. And it just got me thinking. This was the immediate thing that came to mind. It came to mind that the Apostle Paul wrote to Jesus' followers in a profane culture. Therefore, I'm, oh man, where, I'll pull it up. I think I was putting away falsehood. Yeah, here it is. I was going to try to do it by memory. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, so you can be angry about things worth being angry over, but do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. And now here's the one that really came to mind. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Somewhere at the top of this passage, I recall Paul says, Don't, you can't walk any longer like the Gentiles do. Don't walk like them. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the ways of the Lord. So don't walk like them. Don't think like them. And them doesn't mean them dirty sinners when he says Gentiles. It's just that don't, don't walk and talk and have the values of the people who aren't following Jesus. And when you think about that sentiment, cursing profanely with some, some nasty language, a leader even a bad leader. And he is. He's a bad leader. He's a wicked leader. Even if not personally wicked, he's positionally wicked. The positions he takes are not just unbiblical, but anti-biblical. It is still profane. I would still put it in the category of corrupting talk that's coming out of our mouths. So believer, on your keyboard, as your thumbs go across your iPad or phone, might I encourage you, we aren't those people. We aren't the let's go Brandon people. Because we're going to stick with the scriptures and not have corrupting talk come out of our mouths or our keyboards. We're not going to join in the way of the Gentile and darkened minds and anger. Instead, we're going to be different. At least that's what I'm asking you to do.
Now, if we said all of that this is not things for a Christian to take part in, I do have some other commentary about the reaction. I am annoyed that folks on the secular progressive left seem so offended by it. You can find plenty of think pieces and blogs and articles and editorials and also YouTube videos and segments on cable news of those just clenching tightly to their pearls of how offended they are at this language, to which I just cannot roll my eyes hard enough. The secular progressive left largely has coarsened our culture. Using coarse, filthy language in public is a product of secularism. The filth on our screens, in our, on our phones and on our TVs and on the movie screen, is, is a part, is a, a result of secular progressive leftism. The left made a disgusting, profane culture, and when that disgusting, profane culture then insults some figure that they enjoy, they get so offended by it. So I'm, I'm going to use that mocking voice because you deserve it, because if you are on the left and you're pretending to be offended by this, I know you're faking. You're not offended by this language. I could, man, I could do what a lot of conservative types do, and I, I am that, but it's not my primary goal is to be a conservative. primary goal is to think biblically. I can just take you back of just my lifetime. How about just the, my lifetime that I've been paying attention, so 20 years now, of the disgusting, profane, nasty things that folks on the left have been chanting and writing about folks on the right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sorry. Like, your, your feelings aren't hurt. You're pretending you're a fake and you're a... And so, while I'm saying to Christians, don't do this, I'm also saying to the left, you're such fakers. I don't believe you. No one should believe you. You have no credibility. Now, at the same time, we are not supposed to be like those people that are faking their events. And that's the, that's the contrast I'm trying to set up for you. We're, we're exiles here. Even when there, are, when there is wickedness ruling, we are the people who honor the king, honor the position, the Lord put him there. And even, you can do this, you know you can do this at the same time? You can pray, Lord, I want to see the redemption of these wicked leaders. I want them to make good decisions. We want righteous decisions and righteous people in high places. And if they do not repent, I ask that you judge them. I ask that you break them because they have broken your law. Because they spurn your ways. Break these people. You can do both. Lord, give them repentance. And if they don't, we're asking you to we're asking you to break them. Remove them from the power that they have. I had a friend, Sam, while I was telling him I wanted to talk about this on the show, he made another good point that I, I think is worth doing here. It's from the other direction. So folks on the right who identify as a Christian, stop participating in this profane language. But he noticed that there were some folks that identify as Christians who were going along with a worldly way of thinking, a darkened mind, Gentile mind way of thinking, and on social media they were including in their bios their pronouns. Because a thing on the secular progressive left, an anti-biblical worldview of transgenderism, they will include their bios to show solidarity with transgender people. And I think Sam was right. I, I got to give him credit for that. I had not thought of it. But that's for, for the Christian as well. Don't, don't do that. It's an affirmation of certainly a, a mental health issue. We're in a, we're in a moment here not of just uh, an awakening. We're here, we are in a mass psychosis. A large amount of people are psychotic. 
And as we have taken away all, all of the meaning you can have in the world, some folks are trying to find meaning in the uniqueness of being a transgender person. So as we acquiesce to this pronoun use, we're encouraging a mental illness and, don't this is important too, and sin. Violating God's good design that he made men to be men and women to be women. So at the same time that we need not be profane towards a leader you do not like, let us also not violate our fellow man by going along with their madness. You know, there's a little commentary here to have about the practical consequence, not the moral consequence of this chant becoming so popular. And that is primarily uh, that the President of the United States is largely becoming a joke. I, I struggle with folks who, who like hate his guts because here, here's my general feeling. He's a very unremarkable person. He's not easy to like or easy to hate. He's just an unremarkable person. But now granted, day by day, as policy grows more tyrannical and power-hungry, it's easier to dislike the policy. But it surprises me that it that that kind of hatred has established itself that a chant would come out of it because it's to me it's hard to like him or hard to hate him. He's just an unremarkable human being who will never be remembered for anything. Okay, I got to take this break. When we come back, I went to Amish country, Pennsylvania. I also went to Philadelphia. As I do when I come back from the road, I have thoughts from those trips. I want to share those with you when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I took another trip above the Mason-Dixon line, and I came back with some lessons. We'll talk about that next on the Corey Truax Show, right here on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me, your host, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me in my weird name, Corey Truax. I think I've now said it seven times since coming back from this break. You can also reach the show at Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com if you have thoughts or Topics or stories you think that will be good content for the show, you can find me there. I went for work to Pennsylvania. Often with my work schedule when I'm on the road, I'm working into the night, and so I can spend the day doing fun things. It took me to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Here in the South, we say Lancaster, but it, I think it's properly, phonetically Lancaster. And that, that's really uh, the heart of Amish country up in Pennsylvania. And so I did some of the things that I don't think Amish people like for us to do. My understanding is they wish they wish we would leave them alone. But that's not how it works in the United States. We think everything can be a spectacle. And so I went to one of the more tourist trap type situations out there in Amish country. And I wanted to bring you some, some lessons from that, from that experience. I'm sure you're familiar with the Amish. These are the folks who don't use any real modern technology. Uh, they are they are separatists, so s- separating from the culture in a very profound way. Uh, o- often coming over from German Quaker, uh, let's go with origins, and a very religious group. You know the you know the Amish. I don't have to explain much more. Here. As, as odd as course as their lifestyle is, to me, at least, you know, the, the oddity of living in a modern world in a way where you just decide to freeze time a couple hundred years ago, maybe 150 years ago, just freeze time right here. This is the time. This is the one where we should stay in forever. 
Of course, that's odd to me. I'm mocked. Six weeks ago, when we were going through the Afghanistan thing, I mocked much of the, the Taliban, for example, for being stuck 600 years ago. They just decided, or maybe it's more than that, they decided this is the, this is the time, and we really shouldn't progress past this moment. And uh, truth never progresses. Uh, true and false never progress. Right and wrong never progress. They are the same. They are immutable for all time. But I'm talking about just ways of life and customs. They, there are some cultures that decide this is the way to be, and we should never we should never change it. I don't understand that. But these folks do, and there were some things I found in them to admire. And I think that we, in a modern, bustling, busy world, that we should look on with some admiration. Number one, what a resourceful people. As I was going through one of these exhibits, what I, what I found was they are all about using everything. Catching a bunch of rainwater, and they're going to use all that rainwater for a bunch of different things. Uh, using every part of an animal, even some of it requiring a ton of work over a period of months to get what you can out of a given animal's skin. Using every part of every material and doing away with nothing. This is not just practicality that you need to make sure you get your full use of everything when you're living in a self-imposed close to poverty, but as a matter of morality saying every, every good thing, everything is a gift from God. This animal that we have, every part of it is a gift from God, and we need to use it very frugally. That was another word that came out of that exhibit, exhibit with, is they were a frugal people, not just we want to save, save money, save resources. It's just as a, as a matter of their own morality and values, we want to consider gift, and let's use it to the honor and glory of God, use it carefully. One of the other qualities I saw coming out of that was to do that properly often took insane amounts of time. As I was reading their process for things like leather or uh, really these were a lot of materials, it was a months-long process, months long, before you could use the thing you wanted to use. And so I look at that culture of patience and frugality and resourcefulness and wasting nothing and this, this culture of seeing every resource as a gift from God, so we want to use it to its fullest. And I compare that to our culture, and there is something to admire. Just compare how we live on those metrics. I'll talk about patience for me. If I can't get exactly what I want when I want to get it, I'll admit my own immaturity. I get pretty upset. I'm a spoiled American. I'm almost upset that the replicators from Star Trek haven't been invented yet. The fact that Jean-Luc Picard of the Enterprise could say, computer, he called it computer, because I guess we all thought in the 80s and 90s that we would just call our computers computer instead of Siri or Hey Google or Alexa. But he just says computer, Earl Grey tea, and there's an Earl Grey tea. Like, I'm upset that doesn't exist yet. I was recently waiting in a line to pick up food for my lady, and getting upset at this just drive through line because they didn't have enough workers. And here was a meal being made for me, us, that was going to take a whole 10 minutes for me to pick up, and I couldn't have it the moment that I wanted it. Just that, that concept of patience that they have, that they're willing to wait as long as it takes to get the good thing that they need to use all the resources properly. 
we throw so much stuff away. We're not resourceful. We don't try to reuse things. We overpurchase and then just throw away the excess. That tends to be who we are. The idea of frugality, planning to spend less so that we can have more resources to do other things or maybe do ministry or give it away. These are not modern American values. And what I saw out there in Amish country were those values. And it's something for us to at least consider not living their way, not going to this extreme, but at least learning from the admirable traits that they show because those traits in particular, resourcefulness, frugality, patience, seeing all things as a gift that you want to steward well, these are all biblical values. Now, I took the hour and a half drive from Amish country over into Philadelphia. A city that impressed me, I've been to most of the major cities in Western Europe and in North America, or not most, a lot of, and Philly surprised. It was really an impressive place. I mean, for a good two-mile, two-square-mile stretch, you would have thought you could have been in New York City. It was that kind of metropolis. That's the difference between I found between New York and Philly is New York is always a metropolis no matter where you go, which is gigantic, and Philadelphia's was more contained. But I did all those tourist things. A lot of those, a lot of those tourist things are in a power-packed square mile there of the downtown where you can see the Liberty Bell, go into Independence Hall, go uh, the National Constitution Center was right there. The original Congress, which was utterly unimpressive in every way. It's kind of funny. Uh, the original place where George Washington lived when he was the first president of the United States, because Philadelphia is where that... Well, actually, they started in New York, but uh, the when they started um, that first year that he had a residence there, it was there's a lot of history you can get in one, one small uh, plot of land, and I highly encourage it. You know, it's a different kind of inspiration. You know, you go to you go out to Amish country, and there's something of an inspiring of your own personal character, way, maybe ways in which you want to behave and change your habits and be appreciative. There's a different kind of inspiration in that heart of Philadelphia. Where, I, listen, I know the country has a lot of problems. I've covered that uh, extensively over the years. Every Fourth of July, I like to do a video of some sort or some kind of written word that just says, "Yes, this is a flawed place." Its history has a lot of darkness in it, just like every other place. But when you think of the United States, it there is this, I don't know, there's a sentiment that comes out of Philadelphia when you're there that does say that we're a little different. All the problems the United States have, have had are not unique to us. We're actually quite normal in our evil. The evils we did, so, so has every other country done. The other... The thing that makes us unique is our good. The good things that came out of the United States are actually quite unique. The evils are super normal. It doesn't justify them. It just says they're normal. And maybe it's because I have a, a decent grasp of history at the time. But we're coming out of first the Dark Ages, where, as we're going to talk about in a minute, the Reformation breaks open the stranglehold of organized religion, the Catholic Church, that that power center is that is broken. It allows then the rethinking of political power. And so we come out of the, the Reformation only for a, a hundred and some odd years later for this very unique thing in human history. A bunch of people saying, I think we're done with kings and queens. We've been doing it for a thousand years. 
We just decided that these bloodlines, these families get to run everything. By, by the crown's good pleasure, I get to have my family and my, uh, my belongings. And we're just, we're just saying back, no, every king a castle. Or every, every man a king and every king a castle. Every, every wife a queen. We're saying we're, we're not going to live under the, the sub- subjectivity of royalty anymore. That was unique in human history. And then it was exported around the world where we just we overthrow the concept of monarchy. Guys, that is a good part of human history. When you're there in Philadelphia, you see it all, not reenacted, but you get that, that sense of a, a good thing happened here. Yeah, by flawed people and, and a flawed system, but a good thing happened here where the place where I live burst the ideas that brought freedom to a lot of people around the world. I think I would just end the the Philadelphia. Well, I'm going to transition into a new thing about Philadelphia. But while there's inspiration from Amish country in Pennsylvania about our personal behavior, there is some amount of patriotism that can come out of looking back on history. We got to be careful with patriotism, generally as Christians. But uh, in a in a time culturally where we're often encouraged, or at least there is a milieu of hating the country where you live. Philadelphia stands as a, a testament to the history that a, a very good thing happened here. Not a totally good thing, but a very good thing and a unique thing, a unique thing in human history. I think that's the thing I want you to take from this is our sins. What I re- realized there was our sins as a country are normal historically. Our good deeds are unique and it's something to thank the Lord for that he did it. He did this thing on this continent. I don't know how much longer he's going to do it, but he is... Uh, he has purposed to do what came out of Philadelphia and, uh, on this continent for how, however long. One quick thought on that. You know, last week I did the opening segment was largely about how the the shift of power and hegemony is going to Asia. And it was like as I was recording that segment, there was the news that China had launched this really cool missile thing that can go into orbit so it doesn't have to go on a straight line type of uh, trajectory towards a target. You can go into orbit around the Earth, then drop the missile. Apparently, we have that capability too, but we didn't know that they had that capability. So in any event, thinking about what the Lord has done on this continent for this long from those ideas made me think, oh, I was just talking about how the power is shifting from this continent. All right, so here's the other thing I wanted to bring to you, though, from this summer's travels. I mean, obviously, it's in the middle of fall and the travel's over, but here's something that hit me. In the last few months, I spent a day in Atlanta. I spent a few days in Denver and a few days in Philadelphia. And uh, this is historically somebody who travels to New York City with some regularity and gets to spend a lot of time in Charlotte, Atlanta, Nashville. Oh, you should I should include Nashville. In that, in that group, because the Southern Baptist Convention was there this summer. and So just in the last few months, Nashville, Atlanta, Denver, Philadelphia. And I don't want to overplay it, but I, I do want to give you a, an honest impression I, was, I took out of those periods in those cities. We have a problem in our cities in the United States, guys. I'm a city guy. I love cities. I'm with Tim Keller on the theology of the city. I know some of you are... Uh, get me some country, get me some space, and get me away from everybody. I want lower population and a slower way of life, and I affirm that, that the Lord did that too. But there's that theology of cities where 
I go to the New Testament and Paul, Barnabas, the, the missionary journeys go through cities, often because of the strategic nature of them. Cities are transient. People often don't stay forever. They go for a few years for a particular job and then move on to a different city or they go home. In the old model that you pick up in the book of Acts, people had to come through port cities, and so you set up shop in the city because your idea is, if I make converts of people in the city, well, they're all going home. They're not staying here anyway. And so they're going to take the gospel back to their, to their home area after they pass through the city. And so I love the cities. It's where culture goes. I think there's even, uh, when cities are going well, there's a, a preview of eternity. Because we see in eternity every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it's cities where that happens. In rural areas all over the world, you find typically the indigenous, the ethnic indigenous, the religious indigenous, the, uh, the, the jobs of the indigenous people, the culture, the art of the indigenous people, if there is any at all. When you get to rural areas, it's just the people who are naturally there. Cities bring everybody. I love that walking down the street in New York City, you can hear several languages, four or five languages within a mile of walking because the whole world is there, right? So I, anyway, I just love cities, which is why coming off of a few months where I get to go to Nashville and Philadelphia and Denver and Atlanta, that I am sad at seeing the state of our cities. They are dirty. They're poorly maintained. And what I just saw in... Philadelphia is what is a very real homeless issue. There's an odd thing I saw in all those all those cities is grown adults, often men, in the middle of the day congregating. You know where grown men are supposed to be and adults are supposed to be in the middle of the day? More often than not, they're supposed to be at work recognizing that some people work at night, and so that's not always the case, but just for hours, congregating. I, I recall checking into my Airbnb in Philadelphia and seeing a fairly large group, probably over a dozen men, sitting by, ultimately that's the interstate, the way Philadelphia works, the I-95 is running right, I guess it's not 95, maybe that is I-95, running right through it, and there's bridges and things, and my Airbnb was right downtown, and these men were just sitting out by the interstate, they brought their own chairs, congregating there. Not old men, young men. And I went and did a bunch of stuff. I came back probably three, four hours later. They were still there. And I saw that in cities everywhere I went. When I was in Denver, I saw underneath a bridge, this very typical, you know, stereotypical situation, dozens and dozens of tents. And so as I started thinking, those tents are homeless people. The, as I started thinking about that, I started looking for books and resources and found there was a, a recent book released called San Francisco, and it is written by a liberal person. He spends the first, I didn't read it, I uh, get the audiobook. He spends the first chapter of the book just proving he's super liberal, he's a left-winger. But his argument is, the left is ruining cities. The, t- uh, the subtitle of the book is Why Progressives Ruin Cities. So he says he's a liberal, but progressives are ruining cities. And largely as I've seen, that is the case. Progressive, far-left ideas are not made for humans. 
This is one of those biblical worldview points. When you match your policy to to biblical thinking, you have the right policy because biblical thinking is in line with humanity. It recognizes what is actually real, and so you align your policy to reality, and therefore it works better. So you're doing the right thing, and therefore it's the working thing. It's right, and therefore it works. Progressivism rejects human nature, rejects God. Leftism rejects human nature, rejects God, rejects biblical principle, and therefore its policies not comporting themselves to reality ruin humanity and ruin a great thing, which is cities. He he goes through in the in the book called San Francisco the uh, the policies that have hurt so many people. He, he says basically we don't actually have a homeless problem. We have a drug addiction and mental illness problem. Home, in these progressive cities, the opportunity to not be homeless is basically endless. There's all kinds of resources to find a place to sleep at night that isn't outside. But when you are hopelessly addicted or mentally ill, you don't seek out those resources. You just stay in your mental illness or you just stay in your, you stay in your addiction. He talked about how the, the lack of policing has, has become a real problem. When you just ideologically decide that police are bad, or you ideologically decide that people get to live on sidewalks, that public sidewalks that all of us pay for, we just decide we're not going to enforce the law anymore that says you can't live here. When you decide that public drug use isn't illegal, consider this, like it, it is illegal in San Francisco, he told the stories, it's illegal in San Francisco to be doing intravenous drugs in public. But it is the instructions of the officers, don't enforce that law. You, what you start doing is creating these problems. Here's what, I don't know, here's what I, I guess occurred to me. He started talking about his, his solutions, and they sounded like typical liberal solutions. It was a lot of nanny state paternalism, government as parent. And so at least this liberal is being consistent. He wants to have the government be daddy and mommy to everybody. But what occurred to me is for the progressives, it was the exact opposite. Like the far left, they want to parent me and you. They want to control how you spend your money, where you go, what kind of car you drive, what kind of energy you use, what medicines you take or treatments or preventative measures you you use. They want to control you. They want to parent you. But the people who actually need some kind of help, some intervention, the mentally ill, those with real addictions, they, they consider the real compassion is just let them do whatever they want. So me and you, who are, who are actually good at running our own lives, we can't. they got to come in and parent us. But the people who are falling apart, the compassionate and good thing is to leave them alone and leave them in their destruction. And it is, unfortunately, destroying the cities. That is not to say to abandon the cities. That's not for us, the church, to do. I, I, I want to see a, a continued urban revival, urban renewal, led by good church planting in those places. I'm just telling you what I saw. Leftism, as it always does, is ruining where it is in charge, and it's ruining American cities. And may the Lord have mercy so that they might recover. When we come back, I want to help you in a new and refreshing way. Remember the Reformation as it comes up on us. I hope to do some more after that. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Happy 
Reformation Day or Reformation Week to all of my fellow Protestants. I would assume that's probably everybody I'm listening to. If you are happy to be Catholic and you're listening, well, welcome in. Glad you're here. Don't know if you're going to love the next 10 minutes or so of broadcasting because we're going to look back in a new and refreshing way on the Reformation. One of the themes of the Corey Truax Show is marking our calendars differently, not just being American in our calendars, recognizing Labor Day and Memorial Day and the 4th of July and then Thanksgiving. And obviously Christmas is a Christian holiday, but it's become less and less of one. The, the pagans have taken it to do whatever they want with it. We mark the calendar like Americans because we live, we live here, but we want to do something extra. We want to mark the calendar for Pentecost. We want to mark the calendar for Palm Sunday. We want to mark the calendar in very different ways. And one of those is the Reformation that just over 500 years ago, I think, I'm trying to do math in my head right now, uh, like 505 years ago maybe, there was the seminal moment of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door, exposing and tr- exposing really corruption and unbiblical doctrines that the church and, uh, and practices that the church had been putting into place as heavy burdens on people throughout uh, mostly Europe, wherever the church was. And so while I tell different stories every year on this, here's where I want to go. The Lord was good that in my college years, I got to spend a lot of time in Western Europe, six or seven weeks every summer, or three out of four summers. And one of the things to do in Europe is go see churches. They are magnificent. My big brother has recently taught that the old view of the more traditional view of the end times of Revelation led people to do things that took hundreds of years. Because if you believe that the the end is not imminent, and you believe that the the church and the the body of Christ is is marching on, that it will only grow, then you feel comfortable setting a cornerstone for a church or a cathedral that could take 500 years to build. Because you believe that 500 years from now, your ancestors will still be here and the church will be healthy. That there will be people to fill this cathedral that you are working on. And so I got to go to a lot of churches. And so I'm going to combine here some experience I had there with a book I read years ago, I can't remember who it was, about the distinctions in the early Protestant churches, so non-Catholic churches, that's my stream, probably yours, and the, the, the physical setup and the meaning that comes out of it. So, for example, when I walked into one church in Germany, I could not quite tell because there was no signage, if I was in a, a, a Catholic church or if I was in like an Anglican or Lutheran, because obviously the Germans have a Lutheran heritage. And so I, I wanted to figure that out. And one way, one way that I was able to figure that out is I go to the center of what they don't call it the stage. I can't remember what they call the front where people stand. But in the center of, the, of, of where your eyes go, was a giant Bible. Can't remember quite what it was open to. But I remember even at 21 or 22, whatever it was, going, oh yeah, this is definitely a Protestant church. Because what would be here, what would be in the center, would be a relic. It would be an item. Maybe just the representation of the the body and blood. Maybe a wafer and a cup of wine. Maybe the priest would be here. But I know it wouldn't be the scriptures, because that's a Protestant thing. And so when we think about 
the Reformation and teaching it to our kids and appreciating this moment in history, what a great revelation. What a great revolution that at the center of the Christian's life is not what a man teaches, not what a relic might give us as a lucky charm, but instead that the Scriptures are the arbiter of all things. That when there's disagreement between Christians, we can go to the Scriptures. When we have darkness on a given topic, when we don't know what we need to know, we can go to the Scriptures. And we actually don't even need a mediator. I don't need a priest. I don't need permission. I don't need someone to give me a copy of it. I got it on my phone. I can just go to the Scriptures, and that's a good change. Maybe you teach that to our to your kids as you're certainly going around and getting candy for that other holiday. Maybe stop and remember, hey guys, there was a time just 500 years ago where this scripture that we have right now, it was not so easily accessible. Even to the upper middle type class like us, we didn't have access to it. We had to go to a church, to a priest, and he could tell us about it. But now we have access to the scriptures, and it's the center of life. I remember a time in Rome that I, I walked, I was at the Vatican, I think, and I walked to one area, and I saw people going up a set of stairs on their knees. Did not look comfortable. And as I'm looking around at the signage, apparently there was some kind of re- spiritual reward regarding purgatory if you would go through the process of walking up the stairs on your knees, causing that physical discomfort. I saw old people doing it. Some people going quite slowly, praying the, praying the rosary. As they went. And then I remember from a book I read that some other part of Rome, I don't, can't quite remember where, but that in the 300s, Constantine had the stairs from Jerusalem brought where supposedly Jesus walked up them to talk to Pilate. That I, now, hist- historians tend to agree this probably was it. These stairs in this palace where Pilate, Pilate was, where Jesus had to walk up and be interrogated where he didn't say anything. All he really ends up saying is, uh, you say that I am. You, know, you say that I am the king of the king. So uh, th- that's, well, A, that's pretty cool that we probably have the steps that Jesus walked up. But Constantine had those brought to Rome. And there is a, a, a Catholic pilgrimage there. He said in the book that at any given time, you can go see Catholics from all over the world coming to those stairs to pray th- pray this prayer, basically make this incantation, and then crawl on their hands and knees up these stairs. What a great revelation that we don't do those things anymore. That there is no power in these stairs, they're just stairs. That there's no power in this particular incantation that the church has given. That instead of going through some kind of process to earn access to God through Jesus as taught properly in the scriptures, we just have access to him freely right now. As I just sit in the kitchen in Easley, South Carolina, that I could just go and turn off this microphone and spend time in scripture and prayer and have full access to the maker of the universe, not needing to go through some painful ceremony to get access. Can, can we stop while we're getting a bunch of candy, which is good, go do that, and remind ourselves, remind our kids that today is not just a candy and costume day. Today, we're looking back at 500 years ago. The scriptures, as they should be, became the center of Christian life again. Or at least the movement began to make that the case. That, the system we had where we had to scrape and claw and earn our way to access to God, that 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 system was weakened, a, a fatal blow dealt to it. 
that we get to now live in the glorious reality that Jesus earned our place on our behalf. And then finally, this one is totally from the book I never... I'm almost positive this was a Tim Challies book, but this is the uh, not, not something that I experienced. He talked about a place in Rome called the, it's called the Church of Jesus, and it was the first church of the Jesuit order. So the Martin Luther and his folks, John Huss, uh, who else am I thinking of? Jack, can we go with Calvin on this too? They have the, there's this Protestant Reformation in process, and the Jesuits pop up in response. So there was the typical Catholics, the Protestants come up to uh, to rebel and uh, to reform the church, and then the Jesuits come out uh, a new order to be virulent and violent against the reformers. And in their church, the of the, uh, the the Jesuit order, here's what you will find. You will find relic upon relic upon relic. So things they can't necessarily verify, some they can, but just things from Jesus' time. Items that they will claim that Jesus wore or interacted with, that an apostle wore or interacted with, a bench they might have sat on, something like that. And Catholics, for hundreds of years, go to that place to to touch, to be in the presence of these, these holy items. You'll also find a really terrifying sculpture there, I ended up having to Google it to see it from the book. Of a woman, you can maybe imp- int- uh, interpret that as Mary, or maybe it's the church itself, the, the church global, the Catholic church, casting two men into hell in the sculpture. And the two men also have a lot of books around them. One of them is holding a book that says Calvin on it. So it's definitely Calvin's writings, probably the Institutes. And it's thought of that the other one is Luther that Luther and Calvin are being cast into hell in the Church of the Jesuit Order. Very intense statue. But it does mean something to me that those men are being cast in, but they're also their writings, their books. Because they were, in some ways, democratizing theology. That it's not just for the church. It's not just a center of power that gets to know the scriptures and gets to know, in an intimate way, the God who made us. And that's the system we got to come out of. Of course, oh, uh, I guess one more point from that. There is something else in that Jesuit order church in Latin that means basically always faithful or never changing, which is a good thing, right? We, we're always for being faithful and never changing. But they were, I think, the, that's what the writer thinks, was responding to the concept in the Reformation that we would say uh, always reforming. I can't remember the the Latin for that, but uh, heck, I've seen some folks of my tribe have a tattoo uh, for, of of that of those words in Latin. But uh, there's the always reforming that we know we're not finished. That the church needs renewal and reformation, and by renewal and reformation, not new things, but going back to the ancient things, going back to the scriptures. And so, as we go into this holiday, can I ask you to remember those things? It's also the, the reformation that we have at the center of our churches, the scriptures, not men, not relics, not wafers, not ceremonies, not sacrifices, that we come out of a system where we don't earn our own way, that Jesus earned our way for us, and that we are coming into the world where we don't we don't need to make a pilgrimage to go rub a relic. We, we are the people who have access ourselves to the knowledge of our God, and let us always be reforming that.
and also taking advantage of it. All right, this is a weird left turn. I only have two minutes left, but I want to do a political thing very quickly, and uh, that is setting some expectations. I have been monitoring the race, the governor's race in Virginia, tangentially, every now and then, just seeing a story. And there's, there's definitely something happening there, so I want to set proper expectations. Those of you who are politicos and you are into these things, I think a lot of folks on the right have decided that the the, the Republican there, Glenn Youngkin, is going to win that race, and it's a harbinger of things to come. So let me set this expectation. Uh, Virginia is a very, very blue state. It became a blue state in 2008 uh, when Barack Obama won it, but then after the Recovery Act, or whatever they called that thing, the federal government grew in size by by tens of thousands of people in the Northern Virginia area. And then when the government grows, contracts grow. And so a bunch of government contractors moved into Northern Virginia. I saw one study that thought it was close to 100,000 people moved to Northern Virginia after 2008 just to soak in government contracts and soak in government money. And that made it likely a permanently blue state. So they also have, Democrats have, the registration advantage there. There are more registered Democrats in Virginia than registered Republicans. For all of those reasons... I fully expect the Democrat, Terry McAuliffe, to win the race. But it is a harbinger. The fact that this it does appear that it's going to be a race that's decided by fewer than three points after Joe Biden won the state by 10. I think Hillary Clinton won it by 15. It does mean that what happens historically in the midterms after a president is elected is that his party is... Uh, his party performs poorly. And so that, not because Republicans are great, but because the opposition just does destructive, evil, unbiblical, anti-biblical things, that's a a good thing. It's a good thing that there's a harbinger of all of that to come. So I want to set the expectation. A win is not necessary. It just has to be keeping it close, and it does mean good things are probably coming next year. Corey Truex Show listeners, I'm grateful that you give me time every week. I will be back with another new edition of the Corey Truex Show next week on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Until then, everybody, peace and love.